tuned into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from episode number 450 with Tony Blazevich, and he talks about activation. So activation is part of a warm-up. Does it do what we think and hope it's going to do? Is it worth the time investment? Fantastic episode with Tony. Just before we do dive into this episode today, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode. Rock Daisy's athlete management system gives sports organisations the opportunity to focus on the important parts of human performance. No more endless spreadsheets and logging into multiple systems. Rock Daisy enables you to centralise, analyse, and visualise your data. To see how Rock Daisy can help your organisation, check out rockdaisy.com and sign up for a free trial. I'm glad you mentioned the Weekend Warrior because one thing and one section of the warm-up that I'm fascinated by for, for, for a number of different reasons is this term activation or pre-activation is the, seems to be the term that is used, especially mm. in professional football. This section of a warm-up, often in the gym, before the guys or girls go out on the pitch, that is designed around, uh, more often than not, and this obviously differs across situations, but bands, um, various different ground-based movements. And we had a we had an article on on uh, on Sportsmith around this, almost like debunking the the reasons why someone may go through this. But what fascinates me is that it's made its way, this term activation or pre-activation, into fitness magazines. And I'm sure people go to the gym and before they do a squat session, they'll be they'll see randomers doing glute band work and I think it's that transition is fascinating how it kind of catches on but do we need to do activation before a a training session for rugby or a training session for football what is the what is the purpose what do people think is the purpose okay well I'm <clears throat> I'm probably gonna have to give a slightly complicated answer here just just to allay people's fears um it, it is not the case that if I just get a glute band and do some side shuffles and then 15 minutes later, go and warm up fully for my sport and perform in the sport that there is likely to be some sort of major and significant effect on performance. That's probably not the case. But let me just try to allay everyone's fears across the whole spectrum here. First of all, when I watch a lot of athletes warm up, we see this a lot in football, soccer, um, although, you know, FIFA have tried to come out with their optimum warm up and still people don't do it. I, I like the optimum warm up idea because it's what we were all taught as undergrads about 30 years ago to do. But, but, because a lot of athletes don't necessarily drop their center of gravity and do side shuffles and movements, they're not necessarily specifically practicing decelerations and changes of direction in warm-up. They just sort of, a lot of athletes are just, you know, doing their footy skills, footy drills and playing and doing a few run-throughs. It could be the case that some, some motor pattern opportunity is being gained by just practicing a very discrete skill first. And that maybe loading it by adding a band just presents more feedback to the central nervous system to know where the body is in space. The idea that it, it's somehow then allowing us to activate the agonist muscle to some degree to get more force, I'm not sure it's true and I can go into much more detail as to why, but but the idea that the brain needs to get calibration as to where its movements are in 3D space could be a reason why those sorts of sort of brief, short um, act activation sequences might make people feel like they're doing something well. I would argue that if you actually did a very sport-specific, skill-specific warm-up, we would see that those initial activations are not doing anything at all. 
But I just want to remind people, though, that, that it is the case that, you know, you, you might hear, particularly in the physiotherapy fraternity, that these activation exercises are maybe more common than in the sports science fraternity. And, and you wonder why. And you think, well, maybe it's because we're trained considerably in exercise, whereas they have to be able to diagnose so they get less time to actually learn about exercise. But at the same time, remember, physios are there with a lot of people who have pain, a lot of people who have been injured for a prolonged period of time. And we can talk about this. It absolutely affects your motor pattern and the way the brain communicates through the spinal cord to the muscles. And so in athletes who, who are struggling to adopt an optimum motor pattern, it is true that if we spend a very small amount of time deliberately trying to activate a muscle or muscle group at a certain length or at a certain joint angle, and we slowly increase the amount of force we produce in that joint angle, that over the next minutes or even hours, that specific motor pathway will be um, highly excited. That will be a pathway that is easier to send signals through. The possibility then exists in those athletes that when they then start to do the warm-up, they're actually feeling like they're able to hit the appropriate technique better. Again, I'm not saying that that means that they can all of a sudden activate the muscles so remarkably well. What I'm saying is that long-term potentiation, by long-term, we're talking seconds, minutes, maybe hours, long-term potentiation of a neural pathway literally is a way to allow our brain to activate a very specific action or muscle with less central or descending drive. So I just want to say that whilst I would normally not think that what we tend to see as activation exercises are going to have a significant impact on the majority of athletes. I just want people to take that step back and, and accept that potentially in some people, there is a reason to do it and it might then help them further down the track through the warm up and into a game or a match. So we're talking about people that are potentially coming back from a, an injury here. And then well, that's one example. Warm up before an activity. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's one example. So, so let's say you had an injury where it's still the case that at a very long muscle length, we know that you're still not quite activating properly, or we know that when you're running, instead of the knee flexing nicely as it hits the ground, it's it's remaining slightly too straight, and that's then going to put a little bit of extra pressure on the calf muscle, and that's going to then cause an increase in risk of calf injury, right? Because you've got to get power. So if the calf is now being asked to do more, we get a calf injury when the knee is not um, being used in the appropriate way. So let's just take a crazy example where someone deliberately does some one-legged sort of half squats with their eyes closed to remind themselves of how to keep the knee flexed. They then move into a um, um, a bit of a bounce movement where they're reminding themselves to flex and then they might move into a running drill or a running thing where they they are they have a focus on making sure that the ground leg is hitting in the right configuration and they may even have a coach or someone just making sure that that's the case once they've then practiced that motor pathway consistently for a period of time the likelihood is that when i then throw down my running motor pattern that specific action is more likely to occur than if I hadn't done it. And especially as I fatigue, that becomes more important. So under that condition, potentially performance might be slightly greater because the knee is now functioning properly. Potentially injury risk is reduced because now the ankle power doesn't have to overcome the loss of knee power. 
and therefore there is a chance that that i mean it's not i know it's not the the the, the band on the glute idea but it's what i'm saying here is that if there's a specific preconditioning drill that you're doing to remind your nervous system of how to behave it may have a benefit further down the track so it's based on that example and how you've wonderfully explained it it sounds like the intention and the i suppose education around that is super important versus a demonstration and okay girls okay guys off we go it sounds like there's there's more to it than that. There's more thought, there's more intention, there's more purpose to potentially get that benefit. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And 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 when we were talking about what we wanted to talk about today, that was a recurring theme that kept coming back. When you say, should we do A or B? I go, oh, <laughs> could be A, could be B. The, the point is, is that if we just do what everyone else does because they've noticed a benefit or they just believe there was a benefit, chances are we're using something that's either not going to be beneficial or may even be problematic, counterproductive. But if you've got a specific issue and you're looking for a specific solution and you understand the human system well enough, then you might find that the solution to that problem looks like one of these things that we think for the majority of people is useless. And you'd be right, for the majority of people it probably is. But if you know what you're doing, maybe it is useful. And and I think that's where the problem comes. It's, It's that it's getting that information and knowing how to use it and when to use it. And and remember, you know, sports science is a, is a young game in many ways, you know. And so a lot of the knowledge then drifts off and we're not replacing that knowledge or mentoring people as they come through. I, I certainly didn't understand the nervous system like this when I was 25 and 30 and working with, you know, Olympic athletes in the UK. You know, it's it's it really is the case that understanding when and how to use things is more important than is it good or is it bad? I mean, as you probably remember, most of my research is on muscle stretching and the amount of crazy stuff about stretching just blows me away. And you can pretty much be sure that if you believe absolutely A or absolutely B, you're wrong, right? Because the answer is somewhere in the middle and you have to truly understand the system to be able to use stretching appropriately. Last question activation, and this may be an obvious one, but it also may not. Why do the glutes get such an emphasis on this because I've been places and people call it glue activation. Like it's just, it's just been integrated within the the term within the session. So why, why focus there? And is, I know this is a horrible question, but is that focus necessary or are we just saying the same as before where the majority of the people, it's probably not. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to give you my answer and then I'm going to give you that little caveat again. Right. In the majority of people, doing a glute activation exercise is not going to affect the way they then perform a very complicated high velocity task. Okay, so for the majority of people, I've seen no evidence that lying on your back, one leg with your knee very flexed, which just takes your hamstrings off stretch, and trying to activate the glute then affects the way the body works. And I know that there are one or two studies maybe concluding that there is, but when I delve into the actual data, I either don't see that it backs up the conclusion or in fact, I would have taken the opposite conclusion that this actually is indicating that the nervous system is not using it, right? So the question then is, why is everyone focusing on the glute? Well, for a start, if we're talking about running-based athletes, it is true that when the hip is relatively flexed and then generates an extensor moment, 
the gluteal muscles are very, very important. In that case, gluteus maximus is a really important hip extensor along with the, the hamstrings. Once the foot is on the ground, you have other gluteal muscles that are really important, minimus, medius, as well as tensor fascia lata and a few of your, I'll call them just hip rotator muscles, a bit like your rotator cuff. You've got like a rotator cuff around the hip and they are trying to hold the pelvis in the optimum position to allow the hip as the leg swings to store and release elastic energy. And if the hip is falling, that's energy that we're using to cause rotation. And that's not energy going into forward propulsion. If the hips are moving like this, then when the hip, the thigh moves back, the muscles that are storing elastic energy are not the ones that are then trying to drive the hip flexion once the hip then comes back and corrects itself. So what we need is for the axial skeleton and the pelvis to be held in very specific body positions. We need a very complicated activation pattern to do it. And a lot of the muscles that help to do it, either to extend the hip in the first place or to hold the pelvis, are gluteal muscles, not just gluteus maximus. And in my experience, I have to admit, and particularly working in football or in soccer, where you see big flat bums in some athletes, the amount of hip rotation being caused is significant. And when we've then spent sort of eight weeks um, doing exercises, both the running drills and strength work to get the hip extensors working more effectively, the glutes firing, if you like, their running mechanics fix up and their injuries are, are, are moving away and they're running faster. So I know we don't like to say, oh, I want to activate my glute better. And then people say, well, if I couldn't activate my glute, I couldn't walk. And I would say, well, I can do a push up, but I can't bench press 200 kilos. At the elite level, it could be the case that working a certain motor pathway is very, very useful. And because a lot of us are running athletes, the glute probably cops a lot of that, that stuff. But look, at the end of the day, the predominant power output is actually coming from your ankle uh, when you run, not from your hip. Your hip obviously does the work that is stored at the ankle, so it's still absolutely vital. But in lots of other sports and lots of other movement directions, there are many other muscles that need to be activating appropriately for optimum performance. So I'm not sure why glute is always specifically targeted, but at the same time, I just want to put in that caveat that in a lot of athletes who aren't highly trained sprint runners and are doing sports where they're often performing under fatigue and start to get into bad motor pattern habits, that working on how the hip extensors function can be very, very useful for those athletes. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. And if you want to listen or watch the full episode with Tony Blazevich, it's episode 450, and you can check it out on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.